Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Friday, June 2nd, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 57. This episode is brought to you by Polycultured, our farm resources blog. We create informative content about a variety of topics, including organic agriculture, composting, seed saving, herbalism, permaculture strategies, and more. Polycultured is looking forward to sharing our farm offerings with you. So if you're interested in our work, you can visit our site at www.polycultured.com. In this episode, we'll be covering an introduction to residential solar power with a focus on photovoltaic technology or solar panels. Solar panels harness the sun's energy and turn it into electricity. The sun generates more energy in one hour than is used by everyone on Earth in one year. Solar technology and design is a lot more than just panels, though. It's important to know all the options for passive solar design, space heating and cooling, solar water heating, and more. Solar panels have a wide variety of uses and applications and can power a lot more than just residential properties. Solar technology can be used to diversify energy sources, improve efficiency, and to save money and increase self-sufficiency. Let's take a look at the basics of solar technologies before turning our focus to the basics of residential solar power. Passive solar technology provides light and can harness heat from the sun in order to warm a building. This is achieved through air movement that ventilates the heating and cooling of living spaces without any mechanical or electrical devices. For example, in passive solar design in the Northern Hemisphere, a building uses its south-facing windows to collect heat from the sun between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. and then stores that heat in the materials used to build the building, such as brick, stone, and tile. This is known as thermal mass. The building will then release that heat during periods when the sun is not present, like during the night. Passive solar design can also include cooling. This is where shade, thermal mass, and ventilation strategies are deployed to reduce daytime heat and store cool night air in order to keep the building temperature relatively constant and regulated. There's another type of solar technology, solar water heating. And there are so many interesting designs for this. This is when a heating system harnesses heat from the sun to provide hot water for a building. The basics are that the device collects thermal energy from the sun and uses it to heat the water that goes into hot water pipes. It is usually comprised of a solar collector, insulated piping, and a hot water storage tank. Solar water heating systems may use electrical pumps or simply use passive thermodynamics. And note that solar water heating systems also use a type of panel, the solar collector, but instead it uses the radiation from the sun to generate heat for water, whereas a photovoltaic system uses a panel to produce electricity. Solar photovoltaic technology is what I'll be focused on today. This is solar power which converts sunlight directly into electricity in order to power things. Photovoltaic means to convert light or photons to electricity voltage, and this is known as the photovoltaic effect. In 1839, Edmund Becquerel, a young physicist working in France, was believed to be the first person to observe the photovoltaic effect. In the 1860s, Augustin Mouchot 
a French mathematician, began registering patents for solar-powered engines. And in 1883, Charles Fritz, an inventor in New York, created the first solar cell when he coated selenium with a thin layer of gold, which created a very low-impact solar cell. Across the world, scientists began working on various models for solar energy, and Alexander Stoltov created the first solar cell based on the photovoltaic effect in 1888. We tend to think of this technology as new and futuristic, but it's actually been around for quite some time, just not in an implementable or scalable way. In 1961, the author Frantz Fanon wrote in The Wretched of the Earth that perhaps it is necessary to begin everything all over again to change the nature of the country's exports and not simply their destination to re-examine the soil and mineral resources, the rivers, and why not the sun's productivity. This comes just 10 years after the discovery of the first silicon solar cell, which was discovered by scientists at Bell Laboratories, where they found that it could generate an electric current when exposed to sunlight. The majority of today's solar cells are actually still made from the silicone and can be fashioned into sets of panels which can be installed on roofs of buildings and on ground-mounted racks. And so the reason why solar cells are primarily made from silicon is because it is a chemical element that holds conductive properties. Exposure to light changes the electrical characteristics of silicon and generates an electrical current. Each cell is a small square of silicon with electrical contact plates that are on the front facing side. And as I mentioned earlier, panels are made up of a grid of these solar cells. And there is a back sheet on the back and glass on the front. Another option is a thin film solar cell. And these are made from thin layers of semiconductor material like cadmium telluride or copper indium gallium diselenide. And they are very, very thin cells, only a few micrometers thick. They're flexible and lightweight, which makes them ideal for portable applications. And sometimes these cells are preferred because of their less taxing manufacturing techniques and ease of scale compared to silicon solar cells. Yet another option is called multi-junction or 3-5 solar cells that are mainly constructed from elements in group 3 like gallium and indium and group 5 like arsenic and antimony of the periodic table. They have a high rate of conversion from sunlight to electricity and result in higher efficiencies, but they're more expensive and mainly used for aerial vehicles and also satellites. Researchers are looking for other kinds of photovoltaic technologies made from different organic materials, quantum dots, and hybrid organic-inorganic materials, which are called perovskites. The goal of newer technologies is to lower cost and to manufacture better panels. So what are the parts of a solar energy system? The individual solar cell or photovoltaic cell is that which turns sunlight into electricity. Solar cells are often fashioned together into a module or a panel. And if you look closely at a solar panel, you'll be able to see several identical cells that are arranged in a grid pattern. And when several solar panels are placed together, they're called an array. So the smallest unit of a solar panel is that solar cell, which arranged together makes a solar panel. 
And then a bunch of solar panels that are arranged together, which is typically what you see, um, is called an array. An average solar panel contains about 40 cells, and the average residential array contains about 10 to 20 solar panels. And each panel can gather between 10 and 300 watts, which seems like a broad range. And this is because there's a variety of different products on the market with different use applications. Smaller panel systems will be able to power devices, whereas large systems can power whole buildings. So panels do tend to come in standard configurations, so you should know about these most commonly. They're 60 cells or 72 cell models, and that depends on the mounting space that you have available. And there are other configurations for uh, mobile use and RV use as well. And there are a few main solar cell technologies. The most established are monocrystalline and polycrystalline. Mono being made from a single source of silicon, whereas poly cells are blended bits of silicon into a single cell. So monocrystalline solar cells are about 13 to 16% efficient at converting sunlight to electricity, and they appear as black panels. Mono cells are usually the most efficient and the most expensive, but the least sustainable to produce. And poly cells are usually blue and tend to be less efficient on average at around 11 to 14%, but are less expensive and more sustainable to produce. There's also thin film panels, which are created by depositing a thin layer of material onto a backing plate made of glass or plastic, and that's going to be the least efficient at 7 to 10%. But also, it's the least expensive, and it's the most sustainable to produce. And the main advantage of this particular type of thin film panel is that they can be used in hotter climates, so they'll suffer less power loss under really hot conditions, and the technology does not need to be under glass, so the panels are flexible and very durable. So it's like a very different material to be working with. And on the back of the panel is a junction box, which may or may not have cables. If it has no cables, then the box can be open to access the electrical terminals. And this is where the wires are actually attached to conduct the electricity that's generated away from the panels. If there are cables visible, the junction box is sealed and not accessible, um, and that's the more common presentation that you'll see. You also need an inverter. An inverter converts the sun's energy into a format that can power your electricity needs, and racking, which is the foundation on which your solar system will be mounted. A solar inverter's job is to convert DC direct current into AC alternating current it's a conversion of the energy into a format that can power your typical electrical needs. Inverters have a maximum string size, which is the upper limit to the number of panels that they can support. After the inverter converts the power to AC alternating current, electricity then runs through the circuit breaker panels and into your home as it would on the main grid system. A microinverter system is one where there's no centralized inverter, and instead you're opting for an inverter on each panel. And this is a good idea for those who are starting small and they're planning to expand their system later on. Microinverters make the panel a self-contained solar system, where additional panels 
and removal of panels will not impact the performance of the rest of the system. String inverters, on the other hand, have the advantage of being very simple and inexpensive. This is where the panels are wired together in a series called strings, where one panel is connected to the next, and then the last panel is what's going to plug into the inverter. And here's the difference between microinverters and string inverters, because each panel in the string is on the same circuit, which means that each panel performs at the same level. So for example, if shade causes the output of one of your panels to drop, the rest of the string will also suffer a production drop as well. So string inverters obviously lend themselves to areas where full sunlight exposure is the norm. If your panels will experience shade at some point, an inverter with power optimization technology is one way that you can help mitigate that production loss. Power optimizers are attached to the solar panels, which allow the system to control each panel's output independent from the rest of the panels in the string. If one panel becomes obstructive, the optimizers will help the other panels in the string remain unaffected. And optimizers are also useful for overcast weather. You also want to calculate the ideal string size to maximize production without overloading your inverter by factoring in local temperatures and the specs of the appliances that you will be using. Now to talk about racking and mounting your panels. One of the best places for panels is on the roofs of your structures. Rooftop solar is often less expensive because support beams are the only mounting hardware for the panels, and there's no substructure necessary to hold the weight of the solar array. Keep in mind how old the roof is and the next time that you'd expect to need it to be replaced. Ground mounts are usually made of aluminum or metal, and they cost more and they may be more susceptible to obstructions, but they're easier to access than roof panels. And a pole mount is a type of ground mount that is a pole that lifts the solar array off of the ground. And those are especially useful for snowy climates. Um, and it also allows for tilting of the panel at a steeper angle, which helps reduce the buildup and of course, snowy obstructions. The location of your panels is also a critical component to their energy output. So places closer to the equator will get more sunlight or irradiance and the more irradiance hitting the panel, the more electrical energy that can be produced. In the northern hemisphere, the panels should face due south to gain maximum exposure as the sun travels east to west all day, and due north for those in the southern hemisphere. When finding south, make sure your compass or digital compass can adjust for magnetic declination, which is the angle between the magnetic north and the true geographical north. The angle of the panel also affects the output, but a tilt angle equal to your latitude will yield the best year-round production. A tilt angle equal to your latitude minus 15 degrees will favor summer production, while an angle equal to your latitude plus 15 degrees will favor winter production. So if you can make a system with adjustable angled panels, that would be ideal. At 37 degrees latitude, 37 degree angle would work well, but a 52 degree angle will work better in the winter and a 22 degree angle will work better in the summer. 
Other considerations for your installation are that your panels should experience the least possible shade between the peak hours of 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And remember that shade angles will also change with the seasons and the angle of the sunlight. You also need to plan ahead if you're planting trees because you don't want them to create shade as they grow taller over the years. You may also have heard of solar trackers and these are mounts that follow the sun's position in the sky to maximize production, um, but these are almost never worth it. So adding a few more panels to your array is a lot more cost effective than purchasing a solar tracker. They are often shown for their gimmicky flower petal looking design, but they are not necessarily recommended for most residential projects. And in addition, to these necessary components for your uh, solar system, most people will opt for a method of storing the energy that's generated from the panels. So if you have power lines available, you can feed the excess energy into the utility grid to use it later. But many people will be going into their solar projects with an off-grid focus. And in this case, you'll want to install a battery in order to store the energy that you generate and use it during the non-sunny hours. And a charge controller, which will control the rate at which those batteries are charging from the solar. And these are all connected through wiring. Solar batteries are flood lead acid or sealed lead acid or lithium ion. So flooded lead acid batteries use old technology and they require monthly maintenance to stay operational. The battery must be refilled with distilled water which evaporates as it charges. Sealed lead acid batteries use the same technology, but they're sealed to prevent off-gassing and are maintenance free. And then there's lithium batteries, which are the best battery for features and performance, being that they charge faster, are maintenance free, endure deeper discharge cycles, and have a two to three times longer lifespan than the lead acid batteries do. And some people opt for other equipment, which helps monitor the system's output and is accessible through computer or mobile devices. And this can help with understanding the health of the system and if there are any issues with shading or equipment that has stopped working properly. With proper management, solar panels last and they're effective for a very long time. Most manufacturers guarantee under warranty that panels will remain about 80% efficient for 25 years. And even then, they will most likely continue working at a reduced output, and therefore panels tend to be very reliable. Inverters and batteries, though, may have shorter lifespans than the panels themselves, and they could reasonably last 10 to 20 years. Um, lead acid batteries last about three to seven years, and lithium batteries last about 10 to 15 years. So why might someone want to utilize solar power? One, sunlight is the most powerful energetic resource we have access to on the planet Earth. The sun's rays will continue to be harvested over and over again for energy and will not deplete the resource. So you can just ask the plants this because they've been relying on this resource for time immemorial. Number two, solar power can drop your electric bill to zero and it will eclipse the amount paid for the system with the amount saved in just a few years' time. Number three, 
Solar power is also remote power and works well for places where it is expensive or simply not possible to connect to the grid. And this also makes them a stable source of power should the grid go down for any reason. So solar energy would still be accessible to you. And number four, homes that are outfitted with solar systems have been known to sell for around 4% higher than homes of the same value without solar. It allows for the renovation of homes that are in undeveloped or otherwise rural areas. And now a few downsides because you can't have the good without the bad. So some downsides of solar include a high upfront cost, um, which is prohibitive to many young or working people who would benefit most from reducing their energy bills. So that's the first thing. Number two is that it's weather dependent. So shade, snow, debris, other materials, th these can all reduce um, solar output and in a very significant way, like up to 80%. Number three is that solar panels are just that, they're panels and they take up a large amount of surface area. So your site needs to have a place for them. And four, the biggest expense with solar energy is not the panels, but the batteries. The batteries are really useful for solar systems, but many people will start with panels and buy batteries later when they can afford it. So now we're going to move on to talking about the differences between grid tie and off-grid solar. It's one of the first things that you'll need to decide when you design your home system for solar. The first is the grid tie systems. These are preferred for those houses that already have access to power lines and they help you save money on your electric bill without the cost of the battery. Off-grid solar, on the other hand, is used for delivering power to remote properties without access to power lines and require the use of a battery. The third system is the battery backup or energy storage system, which is a hybrid where the house is still connected to the grid, but the system has its own batteries, and this allows you to store backup power in case of an outage, and also so that you can store energy to use it or sell it later. And the advantage of the energy storage system is that you get the most from the electricity that you generate, and you have the most flexibility from where you're going to draw your power. If you choose to utilize a grid tie solar system, you'll want to know about the concept of net metering, which is the agreement with the utility company in regards to the rate at which solar customers are credited and billed for power usage. In short, you generate power and store it in the public utility grid, and in exchange, the utility company credits your account. The reason this is important is because under most circumstances, the utility will buy and sell electricity at the same rate but some may buy power at a reduced rate. So you'll want to use this calculation in your estimates for a return on investment. So make sure you understand your utility company's net metering policy fully before you engage with them in your grid tie system. Solar efficiency is measured by how much of the sun's potential energy is converted into solar power. For example, a 100 watt panel with 20% efficiency. What that means is that it will absorb 20% of the potential 500 watts of continuous sun power. When you see information about solar efficiency, think about it as a measurement of how you can fit more solar in less space. In other words, 
solar efficiency is really only relevant if you have limited space. Other than that, it's no harm in creating a larger array that has less efficient panels. Less efficient panels often lower the cost of your entire system. So before we get to calculating your energy needs with solar, I want to take a moment to review basic solar electrical characteristics. Remember that photovoltaic panels produce direct current. That's DC electricity which is the same type of electricity found in batteries, and which means that the electricity only flows in one direction. But the appliances we use every day are actually called alternating current or AC, which means that the electricity can change direction rapidly, which confers advantages in transmission, such as greater distance through smaller wires. So a volt is a unit of electrical potential. An amp is a rate of current flow, and a watt is a rate of energy supply or consumption. So we'll go over this again. Power equals the rate at which energy is supplied. Power is measured in watts. Energy equals the measure of power over time. That's measured in watt hours or kilowatt hours. So the equation is power in watts times time in hours equals energy in watt hours. If a light bulb is 60 watts, it uses 60 watt hours of energy per hour. That's what watt hours is referring to. The wattage rating matters because the higher the wattage of the solar panel, the more energy will be produced over time than a lower wattage panel. So a 100 watt panel will produce twice as much energy as a 50 watt panel in the same location and in the same period of time. Also note that wattage is calculated under standard test conditions, so it's likely that panels will all produce lower wattage than in their actual use than what is listed. So you may also see a reference to rated wattage of a panel and watts equal the operating voltage multiplied by its operating current. So the amount of energy watt hours is a product of the wattage of the panel and the number of full intensity sunlight that it gets. If this is getting confusing for you, let's just try another example to clarify this. A solar panel that outputs 100 watts for two hours produces 200 watt hours of energy. And remember, it's going to be a little bit less than that due to some factors that happen in practice. And it's also useful to understand voltage ratings as well. So the nominal voltage of a panel is the most common way to talk about the voltage of panels and other components. It technically refers to the voltage of the battery that the panels are best suited to charge and it allows us to easily see if a panel is compatible with the rest of the solar system. So the voltage at maximum power or VMP is the highest voltage that that panel can produce while connected to the system and at peak efficiency. And open circuit voltage or VOC refers to the maximum voltage the panel can produce when not connected to an electrical circuit or system and that's measured with a meter connecting to the panel terminals.
Similar to voltage at maximum power, panels have current ratings, IMP and ISC, listed in amps, and that tells us the maximum current available when the panel is operating at peak efficiency. And you can find all of these specs on the equipment as well as on the sheet from the manufacturer. And feel free to go back to the transcript after this episode to review some of these concepts because they are important, but can be a little confusing or overwhelming when you first enter into the world of the math calculations of solar. And so figuring out the size of your solar energy system takes some time and calculating. It's going to depend on your energy usage, which is measured in kilowatt hours. So if you look on your electricity bill or go online to your utility provider, you may be able to see how much power you're using monthly. So average the past 12 months of power usage and then divide that by 12 and you'll find your average monthly energy usage. And if you divide that by 30, you'll get your daily energy requirement. Then look up peak sun hours in your area by looking at a sun hours chart in the closest city to you. For grid tie systems, all you're going to do is take your daily kilowatt hours energy requirement that you calculated and divide that by your peak sun hours. And that's how you'll get your kilowatt output. For off-grid systems, it's gonna be a little bit different. You'll need to take into an account your daily energy usage and voltage used by looking at your equipment and your appliances. And then you're gonna to need to multiply that number by how many hours per day those items are used. For example, five watts of power, but used 24 hours per day, ends up being 120 watt hours per day, or that's 0.12 kilowatt hours per day. Uh, that could be like a refrigerator or something. Inverters also require power. So if you're using an inverter, there are efficiency losses, and those need to be considered in your calculations as well. Then you're going to look at the peak sun hours and determine how much sun your panels will be getting. And then next, we move on to having to calculate the size of the battery. We start to calculate the battery by compensating for inverter inefficiency. Inverter inefficiency may range from 5 to 15%, and that'll be listed on the equipment manual so you'll know exactly how much. But in our example of 120 watt hours per day, we're going to multiply that by 1.1 for a 10% compensation. And that gives us 132 watt hours or the amount of energy drawn from the battery to run the power load through the inverter. There are other factors to account for too, such as battery temperature in winter, which can affect the battery's capacity to deliver energy. Now the example would be 120 watt hours per day multiplied by 1.1 to compensate for the inverter and then 1.59 to compensate for the temperature. So now we're at 209.88 watt hours. Next, we're gonna account for efficiency loss in the charge and discharge of the battery. There is a 20% efficiency for lead acid and a 5% inefficiency, excuse me, uh, and a 5% inefficiency for lithium ion. 
So back to our example again, we had our 120 watt hours per day that we figured out from our calculations of our appliances and how long we're going to use them every day. So we take our 120 watt hours per day times 1.1 for the inverter times 1.59 for the temperature fluctuation and then times 1.05 for the inefficiency of the battery. And that brings us to 220.374 watt hours. Now this tells us how much is necessary for us for a single day of autonomy. And in uh, battery speak, what that means is using the battery with no input when the battery is being used autonomously. So you'll need to multiply by how many days of autonomy may be necessary or how many days that you believe that your solar system will have to use a battery without any solar energy available. This would be like during a serious storm, during a time where there is dark clouds and really no solar energy getting through. That would be a day where you would be using the battery's autonomy. So if you need seven days of consecutive autonomy, you would then be at 1,540 watt hours instead of the 220 um, that we started with. So also note that lead acid batteries are commonly rated in AH or amp hours. So to calculate watt hours to amp hours, you have to divide by the system's battery voltage. So um, in our example here, our 1540 watt hours would be divided by a 12 volt battery. And that would give us 128 amp hours, 12 volt battery bank. Um, so you may need to make these conversions when you're working on your particular system calculations. And one last consideration for the battery bank is the discharge depth. And sizing a lead acid battery for 50% of discharge depth will extend the life of that battery. This is less relevant with lithium batteries but increasing battery size tends to make a system more reliable, especially in areas prone to overcast weather. So you don't want your battery bank to be discharging all the way to zero. We always want to keep some um, battery in the bank and that helps extend its life. So now that you know how much battery you'll need, hopefully we figured that out without too much trouble, we can move on to figuring out the panels, how many panels you need. You'll want to produce enough energy to replace what is being drawn out from the panel while accounting for some of the efficiency losses that we talked about. The National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, developed a tool called PV Watts, which helps estimate energy production of grid-connected PV energy systems. So if we go back to our example with 120 watt-hours divided by two hours of peak sun, that's 60 watts PV array size. And next we account for real world losses at around 15% or 60 array watts divided by 0.85 equals 71 watts minimum for the PV array size. PV, of course, referring to photovoltaic, if anyone uh, didn't realize. Note that this calculation is for unobstructed direct sunlight between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. in all seasons. So adjustments for shaded time would have to be accounted for um, when developing a calculation for the array size. 
And another consideration is that lead acid batteries must be fully charged on a regular basis to prevent system failure. So that's just another element to caring for lead acid batteries. And climate, of course, impacts the size of your system and regions with variation in their sunlight are going to be less effective than more quote unquote ideal climates. However, I do want to say that solar is still a very good choice in less than sunny climates, and it can be integrated with other forms of power, such as wind or hydropower, to account for those low solar times. So for those who want to autonomously install solar yourself, it's totally possible, especially as more systems become plug and play and require only basic carpentry skills to mount them. Installers usually cost in the three to $6,000 range for labor in a home system. And when searching for a good installer, you'll want someone who's insured with proper certifications, such as from the North American Board of Certified Energy Practitioners, and there are other online tools that help you compare solar installers in your area. Also be aware that if you pay taxes in the United States, that up until 2032, you're eligible for a 30% credit on your solar project costs, and that includes the installation. So sometimes there are even more local or state incentives. Um, so please check your area to see what is available. But at the federal level, there is still a 30% credit in including installation, which is really quite good. And overall, solar energy is a really good investment, and it's going to end up costing less than what you would pay for a public utility electricity over the years. Most people are going to break even within five years um, with panels under a warranty for an average of 25 years. And solar continues to be cost-effective, very competitive um, to the electricity sold by utilities and the costs associated with installation have also been dropping in recent years as new companies and industries are popping up around solar. And the other main way that you can improve energy efficiency are to use energy efficient rated appliances and to improve insulation and the thermal materials in the home, right? So um, it's about making good use of the energy that you generate, not just generating that energy. Let's also talk about solar maintenance for a moment because there really isn't much to maintain once they're set up, which is great, but occasionally you'll need to make sure the panels are clear of debris. So both snow and cold climates and dust in hot, dry climates, both of those things can interrupt the gathering of solar energy. So you do need to clean your panels once every three to six months. So you, you kind of will need to access them at one point or another. So factor that into where they end up on your site. And in the show notes, I'm going to put a bunch of links for helpful websites to help you get started with solar, things that I've found in my own journey with renewables. And this has probably painted a pretty rosy picture of solar. Um, yes, it's a lot of math, and yes, it has some startup costs, but it does seem like a pretty solid choice overall, and it is. Um, so let's also talk about the costs of wider implementation of solar and where solar panels come from. So solar is virtually unlimited and inexhaustible, so it certainly seems like there would be a return on the carbon footprint here. But what is the human footprint of solar panel creation, right? Solar panels require mineral mining of things like copper, nickel, and cadmium, first of all. And these minerals are mined using chemical separation 
and extraction processes, which are really the pollutants in the mining uh, question. Um, and they also are known for having a, these mines are known for having a variety of unethical labor practices, workplace injuries, and uh, the employment of children and other vulnerable peoples. So many of the panels are produced in China, where the administration has been accused of coerced and forced labor practices. So you can actually check to see if the company you're buying from follows the solar supply chain traceability protocol by the Solar Energy Industries Association, or SEIA, an organization that was started way back in 1974 to create a trade association for solar industries. So I suggest that you do that to make sure that you are sourcing your solar supplies from ethical suppliers. And similarly, when we bring important inputs into our homes and farms, we have to account for what happens with the waste that's generated from those things. And in particular, in this case, solar waste. So after the panel is exhausted, or if it's damaged in some way, how do we prevent these technologies from becoming just more e-waste? And at this time, there aren't enough places recycling old solar panels in the U.S. where there are no standards around solar panel recycling. Uh, however, in the European Union, producers are required to recycle their panels, not consumers, but the producers are. Understanding the life cycle of your solar system and how to best use it to your advantage is important before investing in the system, of course. But renewable energy is a huge advantage to your sovereignty and your literal power, of course. So I hope that you enjoyed this introduction into solar power. And maybe when the time is right to create your solar system, you can return to this episode and use some of the calculations and tools in here to figure out how you want to generate solar energy for your home needs. And as I learn more about the systems through practice, I'd love to update this in the future and let you know how it's working out. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you can like, subscribe, or comment to let me know what you think of the show. And this episode is brought to you by Polycultured. This is our farm resources blog, and we're bringing you information on backyard food production and sustainable living. So if you enjoyed this content, you can support us by going to www.patreon.com polycultured. This concludes episode 57 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Good night.